Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. John 6, 22 through 71 is where we're at today. Um, and fun fact, if you know me, you know that I love the city. I love downtown Boston. Um, being around the people, uh, the, the, the food, the architecture, kind of the hustle and the bustle. Um, it really gives me life. And I often like to go downtown to work. Um, and very particularly when I'm doing sermon prep. Um, what I do is I actually genuinely pray and ask God to like, let me see or experience or kind of observe the passage in real time in real life. And yes, I preached a sermon a few weeks ago where Jesus asked a man if he wanted to be healed. And that same week I broke my arm. You know, wish I had a cool story for you guys. Everyone always wants the, like, I was protecting my family or I was fighting a bear. No one ever wants the, an empty stroller was bouncing down the stairs and I missed a step story. But that's my story. But anyways, I I pray over the passage. Um, I, I ask the Lord to kind of show me something um, and, and I do that downtown, not that I can't experience that at home or at the church office, right? But for me, there's a difference. Like I'm kind of surrounded by a lot of people, um, people that have a lot of different things going on, whether they're down there socializing, they're down there enjoying good food or drink, they're working, they're traveling. Um, and there's lots of sad things that you see happen too. Um, but all this is to say, all this is to actually say, I haven't been able to work downtown in a long time, a very long time. Uh, more than once, I've kind of made the mental plans, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go downtown tomorrow to work. Um, but I broke my arm. And that's not, the, that's not the thing that prevents me from going downtown, but I have to use voice dictation for everything. Absolutely everything, right? Uh, and um, just imagine, like, I'm doing my emails or Slack messages or someone prep downtown, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking out loud in an empty, or not empty, like a quiet coffee shop. I'm just like, hey, John, comma, enter, enter. Thanks for coming to City on a Hill. Delete, delete, City on a Hill. Delete, delete, City on a Hill. Not, and it, it, just, it just goes terribly, right? In this process, it's like absolutely maddening. Oh, it's maddening. Like, I am not impressed with voice dictation at all on my computer. It's, it's annoying, it misunderstands me at what feels like to be the most pivotal of moments too, right? Sermon prep is definitely the hardest because I want to just kind of start talking and get on a roll and it literally, I'm, I'm not over-exaggerating and I am one that usually over-exaggerates, but I'm not over-exaggerating now. Every sentence, there's always some mistake. It mishears me, there's a wrong word. Um, and on my weakest moments, I could be huddled up in a ball because this software program under, misunderstands me. Uh, and on a serious note though, like with the work that I do, um, it's really important to communicate clearly, right? Whether it's a, a carefully crafted email, a Slack message, a text message, whatever. Um, and this extends far beyond just like ministry work. Like you guys can understand and the professions you're in and the things that you do and the relationships that you have, the importance of communicating clearly, right? Clear communication, clear understanding is extremely important. And misunderstanding can be extremely destructive, Right, if you've been married for five seconds, you know this to be true. Or you've walked through deep relational rifts with a friend or a coworker. And if we say these things are important, communication and understanding are important in our everyday lives, with our jobs and our relationships, how much more important is it to clearly understand the God we say we believe in? If you're here and you're a Christian, 
Honestly, it's kind of ironic if you read through the Bible. Humanity's, yes, humanity's great problem is sin, but there's another root kind of beside it. If you read through the Bible, all over scripture is just people misunderstanding God. It feels like that's like the story of the people of God sometimes. Like thank, thank the Lord that he has the final say and it's his consistency that wins at the end of the day, but it's just over and over again, people are misunderstanding. And we've seen this in the gospel of John already multiple times in kind of really small ways, kind of minor ways, but kind of humorous ways, actually. My favorite is Nicodemus. Remember John chapter three, probably a few weeks ago at this point. Um, Jesus tells Nicodemus that one must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And this dude literally is like, all right, how do I crawl back into my mother's womb? Like there's a big misunderstanding there, right? Or the woman at the well, the next chapter, John 4. Right, Jesus tells this woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. And she responds by saying, what? Give me this water because I don't want to come out to this well every day. In other words, like I think like if, if I drink of this water, I don't have to make this trek in the middle of the hot day, right? She misunderstands just like Nicodemus. People have continued to misunderstand not just what Jesus teaches, but who he is and why he does what he does. In the passage just before ours, if you were here last week, you heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and really it's more like 10 to 15,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then after this, he walks on water in the middle of the storm uh, to frightened disciples. Pretty casual day for Jesus. And our passage, it picks up after this, the next day, he's teaching in the synagogue and we see Jesus going to great lengths to help the people understand some extremely important things. Our reading was only 13 verses, but um, we're actually going through the rest of the chapter today, which is 50-something verses, and it's easily Jesus' longest teaching up to this point, and arguably his most important. Because he says with crystal clarity that believing what he's teaching is not a matter of just knowing things, it's not a matter of intellectual gain, or it's not a matter of living a wiser and better life in light of this rabbi, it's a matter of life and death. When you look at what he's teaching, he's actually teaching about himself. And getting this Jesus right, who he is, is a matter of life and death. So our main point for today is just this. It's just simply this. Understanding and believing Jesus is a matter of life and death. Understanding and believing Jesus is a matter of life and death. We're going to focus on three things he wants us to understand in light of our passage. Three things. Well, first, our motivations. He wants us to understand our, understand our motivations Second, he wants us to understand who he is, who Jesus is. Third, he wants us to understand what he gives. Our motivations, who he is, what he gives. So first, Jesus wants us to understand our motivations. Um, this has sort of been a sub-theme in the book of John so far, in the gospel of John. Uh, there's a, a little bit of uh, under-the-radar focus on motivations and expectations, right? Whether it's Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night, if you notice, John goes to lengths to point that out, so that he can kind of conceal himself and so that other people can't see him or the woman at the well coming in the middle of the day to avoid interacting with other people or the high-ranking official, if you remember him, coming to Jesus for his son's healing. John was concerned with explaining why people were doing what they were doing. He was concerned with explaining their motivations. In our passage, this point kind of gets the least amount of ink. It's right at the beginning, but it's really important for us. At the crowd that remained from yesterday, they got into boats, went to the other side of the sea to look for Jesus, and immediately Jesus sees right, right through them. 
What does he respond? He says to them in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, their motives are off. They're approaching Jesus for what they think they can get out of him. Their motivation is intrinsically selfish, right? And this is something Jesus really cares about. God greatly cares about what we do, yes, but he also cares about why we do it. Cursory read of the gospels, you see Jesus kind of slamming people over and over again for this kind of thing. Right? Sometimes it's not what they do, it's why they do it. It's what's on the inside. Matthew 23, to give you an example, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says this, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, "'for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, "'but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence.'" First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. So sometimes to us, it's obvious. All right, like in our passage, the people are seeking Jesus, something that you and I on the surface would say, that is a good thing to do. Seeking Jesus, seeking God, that is something we ought to do. But it's because they want something. And sometimes in our own lives, though, it's not so obvious. We can do godly things for the wrong reasons. So often we only consider what we do, but not why we do it. But God is greatly concerned with both. And if you read that that scripture in Matthew really carefully, you see that if the outside appears clean, but the inside, the motivation, what's inside you is unclean, then the outside really isn't clean. In other words, if you're doing godly things for the wrong reasons, you're not doing godly things. Again, seeking Jesus on the surface is a good thing, but Jesus knew their hearts He knew why they were doing what they were doing, right? We look at that story and see a crowd of people and think that they're silly for focusing on so much bread, right? We say things like, if only they knew, like if they had the fuller picture, if they understood who it was that stood in front of them, we might think something like that when we observe them. But that kind of mentality is more common than we think, right? More than one person I've come across that when they ask, they're new to the church, how did they find us? How did they get plugged in? Why do they check us out? They often talk about something they want from God. Whether it's getting into a certain program or a job or a spouse even, or things to fall into place in their lives. Don't get me wrong, those are good things to pray for. Those are good things to ask God for. In fact, remember the Lord's prayer? What does Jesus ask for? Bread, daily bread. But when we ask for the blessings of God and miss God himself, we're missing out on the true blessing. A.W. Tozer said, the evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In other words, when we seek God for what he can give us more than for who he is, we'll miss him. We'll miss the mark. We think the crowd is foolish for this. We think the crowd is foolish for seeking Jesus for nothing more than what he can give them. But our own lives, we have this same disposition. We just think we're different because we have the label Christian and we assume that this crowd doesn't. We focus so much more on what God gives us, what we want God to give us more than God himself. Again, that doesn't mean we don't ask God for things, but if the only thing you talk to God God about are the things you want and the things you need. A simple test to see where you land with this kind of thing is just to kind of take inventory of your prayer life. This is really convicting for me, by the way. 
Right? What do your prayers look like? What are you spending the most time praying about? Are you spending any time praying about anything other than your wants and your needs? Like, does prayer actually look like a, a two-way conversation in which you are conversing with God and worshiping with God and communing with God? Or is God like a waiter at a restaurant? I'll have one of this, 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 and this. Thank you. Goodbye. We need to deeply examine our motivations, deeply examine why we do what we do. But here's the thing, and this is where, praise God, we see the goodness of God. Right? While Jesus calls out their motivations, he doesn't send them away because of them. He says, I have something greater for you and I want to tell you about it. These people think the greatest blessing they can get, they can get at that moment is physical bread. But what Jesus is saying is that they're failing to realize that the greatest blessing they can receive is God himself. Right? They fail to realize that the miracle that they saw yesterday is meant to point to a miracle worker, something, someone greater. They point to God and who he is. Now, who is he? The second thing Jesus wants us to understand in our passage. The Gospel of John, if you've been tracking with us, essentially answers this question. Right, the whole Gospel of John answers this question. Right, whether it's the I am statements, if you're familiar with those, we'll talk about that in a little bit. The miracles, the signs, the teachings. Right, they all answer the question and show us who God is. If you remember John's purpose statement, I think it's been talked about a few times throughout the series in John 20. It says this, but these are written, the gospel, the, the gospel of John, the signs, the miracles, the wonders are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is doing these things so that we can understand who he is. The gospel, by extension, Jesus is often described as a diamond, if you've heard of that before. Not in the sense that it's sparkly and shiny, and in some sense it is, uh, but in the sense that it has many different facets. Right, as you turn it and, and look at it and kind of observe the little cuts and facets and different faces and the way the light hits it at different angles. Right, you see each one uniquely carved and cut, yet it's still one whole diamond. And the Gospel of John, maybe more than any other gospel, shows this diamond in its full. Right, each of the I am statements that Jesus makes, each of the, the miracles that Jesus does, each of the teaching moments that he has reveal a little facet of this diamond. In our passage, he uses this phrase, this little facet of the diamond. He says, Jesus, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is repeating something to emphasize its importance. Now, what does this mean? Well, in our passage, it's, it's pointing to three things. Three things that this means, that Jesus is this bread of life. First is that he's God in the flesh. Second, that Jesus provides eternal sustenance or eternal satisfaction. Third, that Jesus provides eternal security. So what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? It means that he's God in the flesh. He provides eternal sustenance and satisfaction, and he provides eternal security. First, Jesus is God. Jesus uses this phrase in the Greek. If you've been around church for a little bit, you've probably heard about this before. 
Um, and he actually, this is counted as the first one in the Gospel of John, the I am the bread of life, but he actually uses it the day prior as well when he says, it is I, do not be afraid to the disciples on the water. That's actually an I am statement. It's just not translated that in the English. He uses this phrase in the Greek, ego eimi. He uses it several times throughout the gospel. And it means so much more than what you might think on the surface. In the Old Testament, God identifies himself using the same exact phrase. All right, he's talking to Moses, a key historical figure and leader among God's people. And God appears to Moses and, and Moses has this conversation with him and he asks him, a pretty good question. If something, someone, some crazy being appears to you in a fiery bush, he says, who are you? What's your name? And God responds and says, I am, I am. I am who I am. And now Jesus is on the scene using that same phrase. He's making a claim here. He's not just saying I'm like God. He's not just saying I understand God. He's not just saying I communicate with God. He's not just saying I came from God. He's saying I am God. God eternal, who has always existed, who has created absolutely everything you see and don't see, and who also cares for you deeply and loves you greatly and formed you in your mother's womb. I'm that God. If you know the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament, you know that after they were led out of captivity, they were in the wilderness and God provided manna, God provided bread out of thin air. And so now Jesus does the same thing for them thousands of years later. Except this time, he provides a far greater, far more desirable, far more deeper kind of bread. And no, I'm not talking about like wonder bread to sourdough bread. I'm talking about something entirely different. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the word he uses for life is zoe. And there's two Greek words for life in the New Testament, bios and zoe. Bios meaning physical life. It's where we get our word biology and zoe, which can you guess what word we get from zoe? No, it's a joke. There's nothing we get from zoe. <laughs> uh, but Jesus, he uses this word zoe. He says, I am the bread of zoe. And zoe means a life full, a life of enjoyment with God. And so Jesus, when he says, I am the bread of life, he's not talking about physical sustenance, but rather spiritual, eternal, joy-filled sustenance. Spiritual and eternal satisfaction spiritual and eternal fulfillment. And the crowd, they interestingly, they don't seem to get it. Talk about how important it is to understand. They don't seem to understand. They can't get physical bread out of their minds. And maybe to their credit, I'm guessing the God of the universe makes some pretty good bread. But they can't move beyond the blessing. Right? They can't move beyond the gift. They can't move beyond the miracle to the miracle worker. Right, there's a miracle behind the miracle. There's something behind it, and it's this, that Jesus is the bread of life. Modern translation, your deepest need, your deepest desire and longing are fulfilled in Christ. The bread of life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
He can only say all this if he is all you could ever need and all you could ever want. Now, some of us in the room probably immediately feel a conflict. Right? We, we hear that and we like the idea of it being true, but yet reality is still right in front of us. Right? Like, I, I'm still following Jesus, but I have a lot of unanswered prayers. I have a lot of longings and desires still that are unfulfilled. So Jesus, how can you say you're this bread of life that is eternally satisfying? Like, how can you say that those who come to you won't hunger and won't thirst, yet I still don't have blank? Yet I'm still struggling with blank. I'm broken in so many ways. Friends, it's a lot of work and it's a hard process and a long journey, but to prayerfully get to the point where you can kind of step back and say all of this, the things that I have, my my physical life, my family, my job, the life that's in front of me is not as valuable as never ending life with God. That's what Jesus is promising. Right, the thing that you get joy from that you get happiness from outside of God right now, which is not wrong to get happiness from other places, whether it's family work or otherwise, those things will cease to exist at some point in time. A relationship with God does not cease to exist if you are in Christ. That's where Jesus puts value. And that's ultimately what Jesus purchases on the cross, right? Eternal life with God through his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. Right? You might be in some sort of worry about when certain things you have in your life will come to an end, but you never have to be in worry about whether you will spend eternity with God if you trust in Christ. And when you have the latter, the former starts to seem smaller and smaller. So Jesus being the bread of life means that he is God. It means that he provides eternal satisfaction. And if we look closely at our passage, it means through him we have eternal security. Two verses, look at these with me. Verse 37. All that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39. This is the will of God, that Jesus should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, you don't have to worry. God's got you. In Christ, your eternal security is not subject to anything. It's not like the stock market where things go up and down. One day looks really negative, things are heading in the wrong direction. One day looks really positive. And scripture reaffirms this over and over in so many different places and in so many different ways. Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, are the things going on in your life right now, the things that you're doing, the things that you will do, the things that you have done, are they enough to separate you from Jesus Christ? No. Paul says no. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And don't be mistaken, this isn't because you hold on so tightly or because in any sense that you keep it together. It's because God is holding on to you. God himself says, in Christ, nothing can take you away from me. In Christ, if you are truly in Christ, you can do nothing that will lose God's grip on you. Now, how do we get all this? All right, some of us in the room have not experienced this. We don't quite have this relationship with this bread of life. We'll close with this. There's reality in scripture, a clear reality that draws a line. Right, there are people that currently have this relationship with Jesus and people who don't. There's no way around it. There's no gentle way to say it. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. How do we get this? Jesus spells it out pretty easily in our passage. He tells us to believe. And then he tells us how to believe or what it means to believe. Verse 29, he's answering the people that were seeking him for bread. He says, this is the work of God. That you what? Do all these things? You live a holy life? Don't do this, do this, serve the poor, give your money. No, he says this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 40 says it a different way, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son, Jesus, and believes in him should have eternal life. Now the crowd I have to guess is maybe tracking with him so far a little bit. Right, they understood there's some sort of messianic figure that's going to appear and maybe this title of son of man, even though Jesus calls himself that, that would have been a little offensive to them, but they understand, they're tracking with that, that there's some sort of idea that a savior is needed. But what does it mean to believe in him? This is where it gets difficult. Verse 53, Jesus says this to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, understanding and believing the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, partaking in his broken body and partaking in his blood that he spilled for you. That's what it means. Right, there's tones of communion here, but that's not ultimately what's that, what that's pointing to. Jesus is saying, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, unless you see, perceive, and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for you and your sins, the things you've done, the things you're doing, and the things you will do, then you will lack a joy-filled relationship with God. You will lack eternal life with God. The Psalm says your sorrows will multiply as you chase after other things. And the scriptures are clear, alongside eternal life with God is eternal life without God. And Jesus is the difference between those two things. And so if you're here and you don't believe this, you're here, you're exploring, you have questions, we're super glad you're here and it's a great place to work those things out. Mornings like this, community groups throughout the week, I'm sure any of the leaders here would be more than happy to meet with you and talk to you about your questions and what you're thinking through. 
But can I just challenge you a little bit? Or if you're here and you're struggling with your belief, let me challenge you a little bit. Alistair Begg says this. He's a pastor. He says, the honest truth is this. Nobody is kept back from Christ as a result of a lack of evidence. The problem is not intellectual. The problem is moral. It's an issue of the human heart. I think he's right. Our crowd in the passage had all the evidence in the world. What they saw the day prior, yet they still turned and walked away. If you can get objectively honest with yourself and ask, what is it that's keeping you from belief in Jesus? I think you'll find problems in your heart more than your head. At the end of the passage, this passage, while it's beautiful and long, there's also notes of like doom and gloom throughout. Those who have Jesus and those who don't have Jesus. But it ends on a high note. The end of the passage, Jesus poses a question to his disciples after, um, it, it says that many of Jesus' disciples depart, right? After they hear this, this, this idea that you have to eat the flesh and drink the blood, but the 12 remain. And Jesus looks to them and says, are you offended by this as well? Do you want to go too? And Simon Peter chips in, which of course it's Peter that talks. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter seems to get it. Not fully yet, not fully, but as much as he can in this moment, he seems to understand that knowing who Jesus is, is a matter of life and death. Getting this Jesus right, knowing who he is, is a matter of life and death. The fact of the matter is, through this passage, through the miracles, through the gospel, through the scriptures, Jesus has made himself abundantly clear. The question is, what are we going to do with it? Will we take the time to prayerfully work through and try to understand who Jesus is? Because, my friend, it is a matter of life and death. A matter of life and death. Thank you.